But it's my turn to kind of take us on. And, um, you know, I'm, not, I'm normally kind of, this point is normally the preacher coming on. Well, you'll be pleased to hear I'm not actually going to preach at you uh, this afternoon. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. Um, I'll give you the money later. Um, Chocolate, is that right? Okay, it's cheap, cheap. Right. But um, actually, instead of preaching, we're going to have, uh, what we're going to be doing today is having a number of different elements, which are really just going to be with the aim to really center us on part this uh, Palm Sunday and the story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem and ultimately the Easter story. Um, you know, and I trust that as we do that, we'll encounter Jesus. So there's going to be a mix of things going on over this kind of next half an hour. But... I want to just start then by just asking Andy to come up. He's going to begin by reading the story, and we're going to listen to the story told in Matthew's Gospel. And I just want you just to sit and listen, and just let the words flow over you and in you, and just yeah, maybe locate yourself in the story, just, but just allow God to speak to you as he reads the story to us. So, uh, Andy, come on up. Thank you. Okay, this is um, Matthew. Let me stand up here. It's a bit better, isn't it? (laughs) Um, Matthew 21. Oh, yeah, it's up there. That's right. Good. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them straight away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed him shouted, Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Thank you, Andy. We're going to hear another account in a few minutes. Debbie's going to come read just in a few minutes' time, just from John's Gospel to have another perspective. And I'm not going to do lots of unpacking, but we're just going to let these words, let the story and God speak to us through the story. But before we hear that account, um, we're going to watch a video by the Bible Project, which is going to set this story in the context of the big story of God's redemptive plan and the significance of uh, the King Messiah figure in the Bible. And I trust it will kind of illuminate the role of the Messiah figure to us. Adam and Eve 
And they're in the Garden of Eden. And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake. And it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great-grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil and that it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends and the snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, 
Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snake bite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus's power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. Good. I love these videos. I think they're, they're great. Um, so hopefully that's helped uh, give us a broader picture of what's going on, the significance of Jesus coming as king and God's redemptive plan for all of creation and also for all of humanity as well. But let's hear the story again. Uh, so Debbie, why don't you just come and you read from uh, John 12, verses 12 to 19. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. So the crowd had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead to continue to testify. It was also because they heard that he had performed this sign that the crowd went out to meet him. The Pharisees then said to one another, You see, he can do nothing. Look! The whole world has gone after him. Great, thank you, Debbie. So in Palm Sunday, then, we have this long-awaited Messiah figure showing up, not as a warrior king, but as a peaceful king. He comes in peace, riding on a donkey. And this peaceful king, the long-awaited Messiah, is none other than God in flesh and blood. He comes to Jerusalem not to conquer Israel's enemies with a sword, with violence, but in peace, giving himself to betrayal, rejection, and death on a cross. That's how Jesus will be victorious and how God will save all of broken creation and humanity by dying on a cross. 
The story of Palm Sunday focuses on Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem as king, albeit not the type of king they were expecting. But what does it mean for Jesus to arrive as king into our lives? I've asked um, Karen Valdar and Nick Bentliff to come and share for a few minutes each around this question, and particularly how Jesus arrived into their lives as king and how, uh, they continue, how he continues to do, to do so today. So, Karen, why don't you come up first, if that's okay. Hi. Um, I became a Christian, I guess, over the course of a year. When I was 19, um, I just started university, and I felt pregnant, um, much to the horror of my family and Matthew's family. Um, I felt really lonely, um, and through my pregnancy, I started to question my life choices. I felt ashamed, but there was no way I was ever going to go to a church because I thought people would just judge me for that. Um, but looking back now, I can see that actually God was speaking to me. I had dreams um, of God speaking to me and in my bedroom. Um, I just got this overwhelming desire to read a Bible, and I'd never read the Bible. Um, it then took until I'd had my first child, and Matthew and I moved to Loughborough, and I mean, the guy that we bought the house from was a Christian, and I saw a cross, and I asked him, and ended up going to his church on the very first weekend that we moved there, and they just welcomed me in. Um, they loved me. They cared for me, um, and I just felt like I'd come home. I'd never felt that sense of belonging until I went to church, so I guess my process of becoming a Christian was probably nine months um, so what does Jesus mean to me now? Um, he is, he is that anchor in the storm and there have been storms. I have had to face quite a few difficult things over the years. Um, and Jesus has always been my rock. He is my anchor. He is my hope. And before I became a Christian, I think I always feared death. I thought it was just going to be a nothingness and it really scared me. But for me now, I guess I see my life as it's a bit of a book. Um, so what I'm living now is it's the prologue. This isn't the actual thing. I'm living the prologue and the prologue matters. What I do, my actions, things I say, it matters. But I've got Jesus. He's my best friend. He is my plumb line. Um, he is my friend that um, keeps me on the straight and narrow. He keeps me on the path. Um, so this is the prologue, and I don't now fear the next bit, because the next bit is the actual story. So in the words of Gandalf, I guess for me, sorry, <laughs> being a Christian, um, however many years God blesses me with, I hope I have many more years to enjoy my family, but I know that when that day comes, it won't be the end. It will just be the beginning, and I'm looking forward to it. Um, I became a Christian when I was about uh, 10. I went to a Christian camp, and um, I was a very shy young man. 
And, uh, but I remember, as a, coming from a Christian family, I, I would often say, you know, when you're going to bed, you kind of, kind of, kind of ask the, pray the prayer, God, if you're real, just show yourself. And I never felt anything at all. Um, but at this camp, there was a, a, on the last night, as you can imagine, there was a general uh, call for anyone who wanted to give their, their life to Christ uh, to do so. And, and I just felt something move in me, and like I'd never felt before. So your question of, of how I became a Christian was very much uh, like the 4th of August, 1977. Yeah, boom, there, there it was. And it was actually kind of wonderful because it was the first time in my life I'd ever been away from my mom and dad. And um, so therefore it was kind of my conversion, not, not conversion because they were around or anything else. So that's always been really important to me, the fact that it's, you know, we're... We are not um, grandchildren. We are always children of Christ. Does that make sense? And the second thing you asked about was, was being king of my life. And um, uh, well, there's two things that have, have come along this week, uh, which made me realize how much God is my king. And if I, if I don't cry on, on either of them, then it's going to be a miracle. So, you know, the, the first one is um, the fact that um, I was in, in charge of doing uh, the youth we have youth on a Friday, and what was the theme of the youth we did? It was the classic um, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge is, that's my king. Just happens to be king, you know, in the subject. And if you've never, re- and seriously, anyone here, if you've never uh, seen what he, he said in about 1975, uh, and, and it's, it's just incredible, it's just wonderful. And I'm not going to read it all out, but I'm going to read a little bit about it because, you, see, you know, I think, well, if you're talking to me about being king, this is what it's all about. And this is only a tiddly bit of it. So, so I, it's the bit I, I, I just love. Um, I love the fact that he, he talks about for about 10 minutes and then says, but he's indescribable. <laughs> I love that. You know, you cannot be described. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found that they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The, the witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him, and death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. So thank God for, for, um, you know, for, for him. Amen. Let me show you these guys' appreciation just for sharing their testimonies with us. Yeah. I think it's powerful hearing people's stories, isn't it? So, um, yeah. Just make me think we ought to ask each other our stories more often, shouldn't we, really? And yeah, tell me your story. How did you come to faith? How's Jesus king of your life? So, thank you very much. Really appreciate you guys sharing, sharing with us this afternoon.